Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome to the New European podcast, the British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. People like me. Steve Anglesey, how are you? Don't forget, if you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Our podcast features The New European's finest writers. I'll be joined by Sonna Erdem to ask if levelling up is just a con and how we can do it better. And 30 years on, James Rogers will give us an eyewitness view of the collapse of the Soviet Union and tell us how the hope of 1991 has been squandered. But first, do you need a laugh? And I'm not talking about the rumours that the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, is getting the sack, or as he would say, Gavin Williamson questus est in sacchi. Uh, but I did have a laugh this week when I uh, read what a government spokesman had said about a new deadline that's likely to cause more Brexit-related chaos. Now, from October the 1st, as you probably know, animal and plant products that are being imported into the UK from the EU are going to require extra paperwork and border checks and an optimistic government spokesman has said we hope these checks will be smooth and efficient because you know if there are two words that sum up the post-Brexit process so far it really is smoothness and efficiency isn't it. The food industry is less optimistic than the government spokesman they say higher prices are virtually guaranteed after the 1st of October. Uh, as European producers pass on the cost of red tape to British consumers. And they warn, too, that just-in-time supply lines are going to be disrupted by the new arrangements, and that mean more food shortages will be on the way. There are already warnings that border control posts that have been set up in Portsmouth and Hull are being hampered by a lack of government funding and an absence of knowledge about how much is going to flow through them. And there's a twist as well to the new arrangements. From October the 1st, both exports and imports of animal products from the EU to the UK and vice versa are going to require inspection and certification from a vet. So it's really worrying that there's a huge shortage of vets in the UK at the moment. What could have caused that? It turns out that we've been reliant on a flow of qualified vets from European countries. Between 80 and 100 used to arrive every month in the UK before Brexit. But since the end of the transition period, only 20 a month are coming in. And that leaves the UK with a significant shortfall, just as we need foreign vets the most. How's that for Brexit smoothness and efficiency? 
Now, after that, we need a bit of optimism. And we asked new European podcast listeners, what makes you optimistic about the current political situation? This was a hard one for many of you. There are many responses along the lines of, you must be joking, right? Gavin Le said, what makes me optimistic? Nuclear war and Tom Daly, not necessarily in that order. Well, I do get why people still feel a bit pessimistic, but a lot of you are finding reasons to be cheerful and that's going to carry us through. Fiona McGregor says she's cheerful about the prospects of Scottish independence. It will allow Scotland to become the country it wants to be and will encourage England to have a good hard look at itself. Amelia Pash says the possibility of Scottish independence gives me hope for Scotland's future. It will then be up to our neighbours to fix their own politics, for which Scotland hasn't voted for at least two generations. Sean Northey says she's uh, optimistic about the possibility of an independent Wales. And David Caldwell says he's optimistic about the breakup of the union, so we in Northern Ireland can rejoin the EU and get away from this corrupt Tory kleptocracy. Adge Craig says he's optimistic about the prospect of electoral reform to a PR system. And Doug Bertram says... He's optimistic about the possibility that we will emerge from all of this stronger and clearer about our position in the world. We might be in Kansas, that's Canada, New Zealand, uh, Australia and the UK, uh, and we'll be very likely back in the the EU soon too. We will learn from this lesson and grow stronger for it, but it will be a hard lesson. Probably our Suez moment for this generation. Now it's my pleasure to introduce a fine writer who you'll be reading much more from in the New European. You'll already know her, I think, from the Times, Sunday Times, Prospect, other places. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Sonna Erdem. Thanks for joining us. Now, you've written about levelling up in Germany in this week's New European, and just a few weeks ago you were writing for us about levelling up in Britain. Is, is, is levelling up then a pan-European thing? It's not just a British obsession. Are there levelling up programmes going on across Europe? Um, the, the word levelling up, which is, I think, quite a boosterish Boris Johnson sort yes. of thing, um, is British. But in terms of what it means, which is rebalancing um, unequal regional, unequal regions, um, it's going on all over the place. And um, in Germany, they certainly had a big challenge um, after reunification when East Germany was obviously way behind West Germany. And it was such a such a pro such an important program for the administration then that they've been working at it they're still taking taxes for that to help them um, rebalance the east and west germany um there's a lot of work going on at eu level um there's uh, i think the center of france parts of spain certainly italy a lot of countries are suffering from regional inequality and there's a lot of work going on at various places, in terms, including sort of devolution, funding for various things, education across the world. Um, the difference here is that it's so stark and um, it's just persistent. Since um, I spoke to one expert who talked about 100 years of churn, there's been 100 years when we've had at various times policies to try and um, rebalance regions. And it's gone up and down, but particularly since the 80s, it's just got worse and worse. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, I, I guess if for, for all the things this, this uh, government could be doing badly, uh, this, this is, this is actually, um, I mean, it's something that's positive. I, uh, I'm guessing, although the results uh, are, are yet to kind of be, uh, well, we, we can talk about that in a second, can't we? Um, it, I guess, I mean, it's not the most popular policy among some conservative MPs all of a sudden. Why, why is that? Why is there a backlash? 
Um, I expect there's a number of reasons. Um, if you look at the Chesham and Amersham uh, election where the Tories lost, um, a lot of the readout from it from Conservative MPs complaining was about how the Tories keep obsessing about levelling up, which makes voters think that they're abandoning the South. And uh, so they don't and they don't want to pay for it, I don't think. You know, they think it's going to cost a lot of money. And they also would probably assume that if you level up, so if you improve the lot of a, somewhere in the northeast, um, then that takes away from somewhere in the south or from London, which, um, if done rightly, isn't true. Mm. You spoke to Lord Kerslake about this for us so, uh, three or four weeks ago now. Just just explain who Lord Kerslake is and why he's so central to this. So he's head of the home, former head of the Home Civil Service. Yeah. Um, he's now got... Um, uh, a big um, research think tank type commission called the 2070 Commission, the UK 2070 Commission, which is doing a lot of research into regional inequalities, taking in lots of papers from academics, um, working with people like you know, Andy Burnham, um, Ben Houchen, the mayor of Teesside, and um, has just done a lot of academic and political lobbying work on this. They're also feeding into the um, government consultation as well. Um, he's quite passionate about it. Um, it seems that he was most struck when a few years ago he was speaking to um, Phil McCann, who's a university, University of Sheffield professor who's really an expert in this field. And um, Phil McCann said, well, do you know that uh, parts of the UK now, the difference, the inequality in the UK now is worse than between East Germany and West Germany before reunification. So communism and capitalism. And um, he said he was particularly struck by that. And so he's got sort of good team around him and he's just you know, wanting to contribute to the debate. And the reason it's called UK 2070 is to show just what a long process this is. Yes. I mean, there's a, it's a huge, it's a huge road. Did he, I mean, he was, I think he was fairly testy um, <laughs> when, when, when maybe when you suggest, when you suggested that, well, apart from sending some civil servants to Darlington, some of his old mates, I'm guessing, apart from opening the free ports and, and apart from sending a lot of money to Tory town halls, that not really much had been accomplished. Yes, I mean, he didn't dispute that in the sense that I think, you know, there's been a lot of research on, so put a governmental department somewhere. It doesn't really help on its own because it means that those people go there it's a bit of a backwater they don't want to go to wherever they're being sent there's not really much chance for promotion because they're out of the loop and they don't really bring a lot of money to the area and the other things like the towns fund and the leveling up fund you know it's sort of pork barrel politics as we've um, mm. seen in the controversy it's sort of it's just money set given from the center thrown at various regions quite often as a result of competitive bidding among people of groups that don't really have the time or the wherewithal to do that or actually win a bid. So the things that have been done so far are not that useful on their own. And I think he, he does agree with that. I think what he particularly got, um, he didn't like it when I just looked at the whole thing and said, well, it's you've got to have this massive web of interconnected policies um, specific to so many different regions which you, you come to at the end of painstaking research. You need to go mm -hmm. to sort out transport. You need to sort out, um, uh, you know, infrastructure. And um, sorry, that's the same thing. And you need to look at education. You need to look at skills, job prospects, universities. So I just looked at it and I said, well, this is impossible, isn't it? Especially with the government like 
we have now where it's well they're all short term it's actually it's labor governments as well have not managed mm. to to um, step up to the challenge and his view was well you've got to be positive this has got to be done it's incredibly important and um he said i've just got no time for councils of despair and um, i think that's the kind of attitude you have to have really because if you look at the scale of the problem and the intricacy of it you know you need private um, patient capital so money that they're going to put into projects that's going to stay there for ages and they're not going to want to return you've got to have um like with the germany story i did um about this place in germany called highborn franconia where someone's done a study of how, why the region is so successful and they've gone right down to talking you know looking at how the employers and employees talk to each other where they do they socialize um yes. in the region i mean so many little things and that's the kind of knowledge i think i understand from quite a few other interviews as well they need to have and to get that knowledge is a lot of work it takes a lot of time and when you look at it it's not obvious you think well why don't I just bung a freeport there and that'll bring some jobs which it might to the freeport but historically it moves it away from another region so it's a big big job and it leads a very very long-term commitment and a lot of patience and um, hopefully someone will manage this the thing that the reason Germany can work a bit better is that and a lot of other regions is they're not so centralized they have these lender um they have more than one central city um they have sort of it's just more spread about and so the local authorities can help balance it and that's um something that's missing here yes and and they, and they have you know there's we we have less devolved power don't we and we and it, they have local banks still which are which are <laughs> which are able to, to take individual decisions. Just, um, I mean, I'm, I will mangle this pronunciation extremely badly, so uh, so <laughs> please uh, please excuse me. But just tell me a bit more about uh, Heilbronn, Franconia, is it? Um, yeah, that's Lewin, Heilbronn, Franconia. Uh, my German is rusty, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, not as, plainly not as rusty <laughs> as, as, as mine. Ha, has this been a result of levelling up, or is, is this something that's that's, ha, that's happened naturally? And, and what are the, the kind of the, the the signs of success there? It's um, it's a long growing thing. I mean, when you look at it, you think, well, it's in a part of Germany that's already rich. Um, you know, what's the difference between I don't know Kent being quite prosperous as well? But mm. if you go back um, in the sixties, apparently they were all farmers, and then suddenly they had to reform, and these farmers became quite entrepreneurial, and they started farming in the evening and doing their sort of trying to develop little businesses. And what they seem to have done is, um, well, what I saw once in a comment under something in Germany, something going on in Germany, was why do all these why are these Germans always so good at really weird little things? And I think what's happened here is that they've had these family businesses that have you know created little weird little things just there's one company that's a specialist in lots of ventilators that you might put in a fridge or in a concert hall and um they've just moved through the family um and developed it and so one a business that was formed as a locksmith is now a massive concrete international concreting business and all the services that go with it so they've they've had a very stable move to prosperity and it's partly the local ingenuity, but the whole structure of the area and the structure of Germany has helped. So, as you say, there's a the house bank. So they, unlike here, they haven't shut all the branches. There are a lot of branches in areas, you know, various um, locations in the region. And uh, these businesses have had a long standing relationship with their bank manager in a way that you would read in old books here, I guess. So that's helped them go through the um 
difficult processes, you know, when everything, when, when the financial crisis comes, instead of sacking, having to sack their workers, they can go to the bank and, and the bank knows their record so it can help them. They have a strong chamber of commerce, which these are also common to other parts of Germany. And the chamber of commerce is so knowledgeable and powerful and it's the obvious thing to join that um, it can help uh, push their cause against other regions. There's obviously Germany's devolution with a lender. Mm. Um, and uh, in Heilbronn, Franconia, they also have um, really good infrastructure, transport infrastructure, even though it's quite green and leafy and rural. They can get about a lot. They've got three um, universities there and you know, historically universities help the region. So I think it's a it's a mixture of local ingenuity. And if you look at the way they work, it's also very old fashioned. So they don't you might think you know, people go on management courses and they come back. Right. We've got to have these metrics. We've got yeah. to do this. We've got to bid for this. We've got to get this external R&D. And they've sort of just turned their backs on that, it seems, and just said, we're going to tinker around. And what they've achieved at the end of this is a very large number of quite unrelated companies because they're quite secretive it's quite small and personal um, that are the best in the world at what they do um, they're called hidden champions which is a phrase um, coined by a German management consultant I think. and um, they've got I think 90 of them and I saw when there was one um, article I read where they said there's about 60 in the entire UK of small companies that are world leaders at their own little niche field. Um, so what's this done, of course, is bring a lot of um, opportunities for young people to join. They can, they, so these firms aren't all now um, family owned and they do know that this is quite an old fashioned model. So with the Chamber of Commerce, they're trying to move into um, technology. And for instance, there's now a new cluster of life science companies, high tech, clean tech startups. Sort of, so they're moving in other fields as well, but it just means that it's a nice place to live and even though, like everywhere, young people want to move to towns, there are opportunities, a number of opportunities for them to stay there and work and um, develop special skills. So it's quite, it's quite old fashioned and heartwarming, really, but it seems to work very well. It's one of the most prosperous regions in Germany. And it's I mean, it's worth noting, isn't it, that it's a, it's well, it is a sort of a backwater, isn't it? It's, it's a kind of semi rural area. It's not got. It's not, uh, I think, full of Germany's leading companies, and it's not just a sort of a, a tech hub of the of the the type that um, that politicians have been talking about uh, as a, a means of regenerating areas for as long as uh, I remember. Um, is devolution more devolution necessary if we're going to do this kind of thing um, here? Uh, yes, um, I've spoken to lots of. You know, economic geographers and policymakers, they, they're all agreed, even Boris Johnson is agreed in that matter, that there has to be devolution um, so that regions can identify what they need and better um, plan what they can do about it. Um, but it, the problem is always about the kind of devolution. So what's happened here mostly has been sort of negotiated, you know, piecemeal. You, you, they talk with one mayor, they talk with another region and they give them different kinds of devolution. And a lot of it's top down. It's almost sort of you know, presenting them with this gift of devolution after a sort of bit of haggling. Whereas what I think needs to be done is more of a sort of general look at how, what kind of devolution would work best. It's not completely handing the reins over. Mm. You need to have sort of local authorities able to decide what they need and then have some money to do it. But also there needs to be some national level and regional level um, policies and I think one thing that people also say is that if you have a whole load of equally strong 
devolved regions, then they can much more easily talk to each other and get best practice through that. So it's a sort of a a region of, I don't know, about three to five million. I think um, I may be wrong there, but one one expert told me um, that has their own, that has a, a lot of autonomy. So, and they don't have to bid competitively for a bit of money from the centre. It seems to be more systematic than that. It's, I mean, it's it's a, a fascinating, uh, it's an absolutely fascinating topic. People should uh, seek out your your piece in this week's New European, also the the, the interview with Lord Kerslake, which you can find on our, our website. Um, in the short term, then, what, what's what will happen here? Do you think? Do you is this so central a plank of of the government's policy that they will be able to ride out this? this bit of um, bad weather that they're getting from uh, MP, Tory MPs in, in the South? Um, or is it something that they will abandon? I, I, you know, I, I mean, I think people who listen to this podcast will, will probably think there's a, an air of, you know, political opportunism in this from, from Boris Johnson. Yes, that's a, that's a million dollar question, I guess, is what's going to happen. There's definitely opportunism because, you know, levelling up, it sounds like that's great. You know, nobody loses. Um, it seems to apply to everything whenever there's a story about education or some, something not working somewhere. It's, oh, well, we're going to level up. Mm. So it's not defined at the moment. Um, so it's very convenient. Um, and also, as you say, there's a lot of backlash in the Conservative Party. And, you know, you sort of see the same thing with um, the climate change. Yes, exactly. You know, there's so much. It's so important and it costs a lot of money. But in the long run, it is economically beneficial and obviously imperative in lots of ways. Um, yet there's a lot of Conservative MPs and others who, who don't want to bear the cost, don't quite understand it. So I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's an incredibly tall order. Um, and I do know that you know, there's got to be a white paper coming out soonish. It was the, going to be the devolution white paper and then it's changed to the levelling up white paper that will have some more policies on. So that will give us more of a guide about what they actually are going to do. I mean, even Boris Johnson's speech, he sort of he did seem to recognise the problems. And um, a lot of people rate uh, Neil O'Brien, who's the Tory MP, who's levelling up advisor, who's working on the white paper. So on the one hand, I think, well, he knows a lot about what he, he knows what he's talking about. A lot of people seem to buy into it in government. But will they have the time? Will things overtake them? Will it just be piecemeal again like everything else? I, I don't know. Mm. I hope it'll work. Let's hope so but I suspect, I suspect <laughs> maybe not. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Sonna Erdem, fantastic piece in this week's New European. If you'd like to enjoy more from Sonna and more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, before our second guest, more of your reasons to be cheerful. Andrew Johnson says, well, it can't get any worse. And that's true. And, and Fad says... Very soon, the Tories will be gone, and then we can actually start repairing this country. Also, the Tories can't get any worse. Theme emerging there. Neil Pickett says entropy. No government of any nation in history has lasted forever, and the ones that are extreme, corrupt, stupid, and incompetent have tended to disappear the fastest. Let's hasten that along a little bit if we can. Andrew Perkins, similar theme. He says all empires fail Uh, And Johnson is not far from the cliff edge. The Red Wall will crumble with him, but there needs to be cooperation uh, between opposition parties to get him out. Oliver Patrick, uh, his reason to be optimistic is my generation waking up politically and realising that we have the power to make change and lead. 
And Gwen Crawford picks up that theme. She says, young people demanding change makes me optimistic. I hope they get change. Georgia Hilton says young people, they have more empathy than older adults and they are the voting future. And Paddy Keeley says, once the next generation of voters are here, I think they might upset the order, but we will have to wait for five to 10 years. And Colin McCartney, he's got a reason to be cheerful. He says, we're among the wealthiest nations in the world with among the best legal and healthcare systems in the world. The future is in our hands. If I was an Afghan citizen right now, I would be saying, dudes, you don't even have a problem. Hi, this is Sophia Dubois. I write every week in the New European on the music scene across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Now it's my pleasure to introduce a writer and author who was an eyewitness to the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. He's the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. Welcome to the podcast, James Rogers. Now, we've talked about the fall of the Soviet Union. There's uh, there's a lot of it in the print edition of the New European this week. Um, I think that having digested all of that, the, the question that will be foremost on the minds of our listeners, uh, James Rogers, is how is Jack Grealish going to get on at Manchester City, who you and I have been known to watch uh, together from time to time? It's a very pressing question. It is. It's uh, occupying um, some of the finest minds following international relations at the moment. Um, I think it's all going to depend really on um, whether Pep has a plan. There were some people who were saying, do we really need another attacking midfielder, even one of Grealish's talent? But I think if we look at uh, Senor Guardiola's record over the last five years, we can see that uh, he invariably does has a, have a plan. And I think we're all looking forward to seeing uh, more of Jack Grealish in a sky blue shirt. Yes, me too. Me too. I'm still getting over the Champions League final, but never mind. Never mind. Come on. Hopefully Jack will erase some of those. Well, hopefully. I was fortunate enough to be there, if that's the right word. And it was very nice to get to travel, um, albeit briefly, uh, in in the circumstances which we find ourselves this year. Although a little sad, of course, to get an entry stamp in my passport, which despite still saying European Union on the front is, of course, nothing of the sort. Oh, dear. Oh, well, definitely a game to uh, definitely a game to miss that one. Now, um, how, what were you doing in Russia in 1991? How, how long had you been there before you managed to bring about the end of the Soviet Union? Not very long, Steve. It was um, I was working for um, a television news agency, which was called Viz News, uh, which was uh, co-owned by um, Reuters news agency by the American broadcaster NBC and by the BBC at that time. And then it was taken over fully that later that year, in fact, to become Reuters Television. It was a television arm of Reuters news agency. I had um, finished university a couple of years before and had had the career foresight to study modern languages, including Russian. Uh, and so um, I came out of university at a time wanting to get into journalism at a time when Russian speakers were in very great demand, as you can imagine. So I was fortunate enough to get that break. I went um, in June of 1991, initially for a week, to cover the first presidential elections of the Russian Federation. Those were the ones that brought Boris Yeltsin to power. Uh, But I ended up staying um, eight weeks, well into uh, late July and then returning again in September. So For a young journalist, it was an absolutely amazing experience to see the world that I'd grown up with really changing before my eyes. You know, people of our generation remember that, you know, the Cold War was there. You had the Soviet bloc on one side and you had the the democratic capitalist bloc, whatever you want to call it, you know, loosely led by the United States on the other side. 
And that was the way the world was divided. And suddenly that summer, that was gone. And, and I mean, what was it like in Moscow at that time? Did it, did it kind of feel like the end of, of empire? It certainly felt, I had been once before, I've been as a student, I've been in 1987 uh, for a summer language course. And it's quite hard to imagine, I've been to Moscow in the last 20 years, you know, mm. it's a big, very loud, wild city, you know, with 24 hour businesses of all sorts. Then it was really different. I, th- I suppose the biggest thing that people would notice if they were to go there or to anywhere in the Soviet bloc was the absence of advertising. By the early 1990s, that was just about starting to come. But with this completely different economic system, you didn't have adverts. The shops just had um, signs like meat, milk. You know, there was no sort of real attempt to sell to the consumer. But it did feel like things were changing. Um, I mean, I remember one episode from that summer when um, President George Bush, who was there for a summit with Gorbachev, was also supposed to go to Ukraine. Now, that was a development in itself because it was sort of breaking diplomatic protocol in a way because Gorbachev didn't go with him. But Bush, by going, was sort of recognising that Ukraine was a separate entity. And those of us journalists who were going to fly, some of them were flying with the president, obviously. Those of us who weren't just took a scheduled flight from Moscow to Kiev. And um, there was no fuel for the plane. We sat on the tarmac for two hours and then eventually they said... um, they said over the public address system in the plane, um, we haven't got any fuel and the airport authorities won't tell us when we can get any. So if any of the passengers want to come with us to complain, you know, they're welcome to join us. So you've got this real sense of a system that just wasn't functioning anymore. And similarly, you know, this is the era from which those abiding images of food shortages uh, in Russia come from. I mean, there was and they, were, they made such an impression on people. As I remember I went back for another assignment in the mid in 2006, um, a correspondent assignment to Moscow, and people were saying to me then, you know, will you be able to, um, I had a baby daughter at the time, saying, will you be able to get food for your daughter? Because, you know, those images were so strong. Um, even years after they, they, they were consigned to history, they just made such a big impression on people. Imagine being in a country where there were food shortages and uh, empty shelves in the shops, but I, I am I am being uh, a, a bit facile there, obviously. I don't think there's anything, uh, there's no comparison. Um, f- but food queues still in those in those days? People yes, definitely. Shops, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, and, and, and shortage of staples. I mean, in preparation for our conversation today, I was just looking at some of the news stories from that time. Um, this is a strange one to remember, but um, at the time, Western cigarette companies were just beginning to supply the Soviet Union. There were in 1990, early 1991, if my memory serves me correctly, certainly that very end of the Soviet period, there were actually riots in some Russian provincial cities because of the shortage of tobacco. I think um, there'd been a bad tobacco harvest. The Soviet Union produced quite a lot of its own tobacco because they're having various sorts of different climates. But that was one of the things that people were short of. Um, that trip to Kiev I mentioned when we got there, there was a story in the local paper saying that um, coupons were being introduced in certain districts of the city for certain basic food stuff. So the supply system, the economy had simply ceased to function. And it wasn't just a sort of theoretical thing. You really did see it every day. And, you know, those of I think a lot of people, um, managed to eat because they had family members who weren't working, you know, retired, you know, parents and grandparents who would spend the day queuing for food. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was just talking to a Russian friend, uh, a, a Russian journalist who, whom I've known for many years. He was at university uh, in Moscow at that time, and he remembered a lecture where um, somebody got news, somebody's mum worked in the shop, got news that sour cream, which is a big favourite of Russian cuisine, 
uh, one shop on the other side of the city had got sour cream in stock and everybody left the lecture theatre, including, by the way, the professor, as far as my friend remembers, <laughs> because it was, it was such a big deal to be able to go and get, um, you know, the, this food stuff that so rarely appeared. And in your piece, you talk about this sort of the atmosphere of decline, but also when you get an atmosphere of decline, you get people pushing against it, don't you? And you, you know, you talk about that happening internally, but you also talk about, I think the piece opens with, you're talking about an attack on a Lithuanian border post. Take us, take, just take us through, through that and, and how you managed to see that. Yeah, this was, um, I mean, it was time to, almost certainly time to coincide with, uh, with President Bush Sr.'s visit to Moscow to, to, to uh, you know, that I think there was concern that Lithuania had declared independence from the Soviet Union the year before, a very, very bold move, um, uh, independence which has not yet been recognised by Moscow, but which, you know, Western governments, uh, I mean, it's interesting, if you talk to, you know, if you hear the sort of hardline supporters of President Putin now, they will say, um, you know, the West would, did everything they could to make the Soviet Union collapse. Now, while it's true that, you know, at the end of the Cold War, they no longer wanted to see the policymakers in the West no longer wanted to see uh, the Soviet Union as um, any kind of military threat. You know, they knew that the collapse of the Soviet Union, the wider Soviet bloc was not going to be, you know, it was going to bring widespread political instability to Europe. So people, were, it, it's not, I think, true to say that the United States or the United Kingdom or anyone else really wanted the Soviet Union to fall apart. Lithuania, though, was determined uh, and was followed shortly after by the other Baltic states um, to get its independence and had set up border posts, um, hugely controversial. Uh, and just um, at that time, one of those border posts was attacked and the guards were gunned down uh, in the middle of the night. Now, at the time, uh, it was blamed by Moscow uh, on terrorists, unnamed terrorists, but subsequently um, the Lithuanian authorities have convicted some of them in absentia members of a, of a then Soviet, now called Russian, I guess, uh, special um, police unit who they held responsible uh, for those killings. But it was a fairly shocking scene and, and the pictures were fed uh, into Moscow TV uh, station um, so that they could be distributed to the international news agencies working in the Soviet capital. And it was very gruesome as well. I mean, There's a point, I suppose, about the way that, that journalism works. Um, you know, this raw footage to me, and you know, obviously when you're working in a TV station, you see a lot of stuff that doesn't actually get put out to air because it's not considered suitable. Although in some countries they would broadcast things like that, they wouldn't in the UK. So it was really shocking scenes of the aftermath of this attack, um, which obviously had you know big consequences because it was just one border post, but it said a lot about the way that that part of Europe was changing at the time. And there were, I mean, there were challenges to 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 Russian authority from within as well. You you're you're sort of talking about, I mean, you're talking about there's there's the stirrings of stuff like private enterprise, um, but also you talk you were talking about political satire is is starting to happen. It was it was remarkable. This in a way, Steve, was an interesting function of the way that Gorbachev decided to introduce his reforms, reforms mm. which obviously even his supporters would 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 accept, led largely to the end of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev faced a very, very conservative, um, you know, hardline communist establishment. So, in order to try to combat that within his own, the, the Communist Party, which of which he himself was leader, he sought to get the press on side. You know, and, and suddenly, you know, the Soviet journalists were allowed. You know, who were very good journalists in many ways, but were just gagged from what they could say. They were suddenly allowed to talk about food shortages. They were suddenly allowed to talk about controversial 
episodes uh, of Soviet history, particularly the, the, the millions who died under Stalin in the 1930s. And then doing this, Gorbachev was sort of saying to the saying to the, the Soviet journalists, look, if you want this new society, you get out there and, and you tell these stories and I'm going to let you do it. But at the same time, you did see these um, this sort of public uh, you know, political satire, as, as I mentioned in the piece, there's, there's a pedestrian street in central Moscow called the Arbat, which is, you know, home to souvenir sellers and, and, and artists and caricaturists and things like that. And um but I remember in that summer going for evening walks there and there were people, you know, gangs of young people singing songs, buskers, but they were making fun of the Soviet political establishment. I and mean, it's quite remarkable to consider that, you know, considering what had gone before um, and the way that this sort of any kind of satire was, you know, really, really, uh, you know, stamped down upon to the extent that mostly in the Soviet Union, there was a very rich culture of, of political called jokes at flourished because this was thought to be the safest way that you could make fun of the leaders you know you normally in the privacy of your own kitchen over a glass or two of vodka um but that was coming out into public now in a way that really is very rare in russian history uh, and as i suggest at the end of the piece mm. it's pretty much unthinkable now um and then of course the the, the hard line the, the hard liners that you talk about there do try and claw things back did you when when the coup happened did you think that it would succeed or was it obvious from the start that it was doomed? It was a really uncertain time. In the best tradition of a foreign correspondent, Steve, I wasn't actually there that day. You know, I'd, um, <laughs> uh, and neither were much of the Moscow press corps, in fact, um, because it was August. Um, and, and I think with hindsight now, people look at R Russia in August and it's often a time when massive stories happen. Mm -hmm. The tragic sinking of the Kursk submarine some years later, default on foreign currents, uh, on foreign debt and so on. Um, I was not back until um, a few days later that week. It was a time of huge uncertainty. I do remember people who worked with um, Soviet employees in their offices, uh, Soviet employees who um, were technically illegally paid in hard currency than in dollars or in sterling, um, bringing their money into the office to hide it because they were worried about what was going to happen. But Steve, the most curious thing about it all um, was the ham-fistedness of it. Um, yes. There was an attempt to arrest Yeltsin, which failed, and I suppose things might have been different if that had turned out that way. Um, they famously put Swan Lake on TV uh, and interspersed it with, you know, announcements of reading this TASS, uh, this TASS wire report about Gorbachev having been taken ill. But the remarkable thing, um, and I, I recently published a book on the way that Russia has been reported, uh, you know, through the 20th century and into our own. And if you look at the way that the Bolsheviks seized power or even the provisional government in 1917 in Petrograd, they were really, really smart about controlling the media. Now, 1991 was a very different media environment. Something would have got out, but nothing, nothing like today. If you shut down the main TV station, you could pretty much stop TV pictures getting out of the country. If you close the main railway stations, if you close the airports, they did none of this. Um, and so, you know, in the modern era, especially in our own age, obviously, you know, any big political or military um, move or adventure, uh, you have to be able to tell the story in the media. And they lost control of that, most famously with a with a really catastrophic news conference at the Foreign Press Centre in Moscow, at which one of the plotters uh, was visibly trembling, um, either from nerves or from strong drink or from a combination, uh, to the extent that this man, Gennady Yanayev, 
uh, this episode was remembered in his obituary some years later. So it really was a ham-fisted attempt. And I think when people saw that they didn't really uh, know what they were doing, that they were surprised that this had succeeded, um, I think people felt emboldened and you saw you know, large crowds turning out to uh, support Boris Yeltsin when he took a stand against the coup plotters and denounced them. And of course, I mean, he is, he is a fascinating figure. Um, we're, talking, we're talking there about people being uh, visibly drunk on TV. Uh, was it obvious then that, that Boris Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson, Boris Yeltsin, um, had, uh, had this, this kind of heavy drinking side to his character? He, he, I mean, he, he became incredibly popular, didn't he? The, the, the image of him standing on the tank, of course. Uh, and addressing the crowds, um, then it, it kind of, it, it went sour extremely quickly, didn't it? It did go sour extremely quickly. I mean, I think what people hadn't really anticipated was a massive economic hardship that was mm. to follow. I mean, I mentioned Russia's default on its foreign debt in 1998. That wiped out people's um, savings, which had only just recovered from the hyperinflation of the early 90s. The prices were freed at the end of the Soviet Union. The prices were freed on the 1st of January 1992. And you went from this, or albeit, you know, mild of, uh, and more relaxed form, but, you know, Soviet communism in its day had been a very hard form of Marxism-Leninism. And you went from that to this extremely brutal form of capitalism mm. almost overnight. And the political will, which had seen Yeltsin elected, you know, very comfortably in the summer of 1991, very soon began to evaporate, you know, and a lot of people got very poor very quickly. A few prospered, obviously, you know, this, the, the oligarchs about home would still speak today. A lot of them, uh, you know, the older ones particularly, you know, made their initial fortunes in that period. Um, and it was, and I think, to the extent that today democracy is still considered a slightly dirty word um, in Russian, um, because people associate it not necessarily with having, you know, a say in the way that your political society is run, but with the chaos that followed the end of the Soviet Union. So it went, it went away very rapidly. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the promises that were made and a lot of the hopes that people had then, you know, really had gone within a few years and, and are yet to return. And we see that Russia's ended up with a political system, which it now has. And was Yeltsin, was it known then that Yeltsin was a, a heavy drinker? It was no, no, but you know, there's a, the the it, not to the extent that it seemed to affect his performance. I mean, that that the the, uh, the standing on the tank to which you refer, you know, that took a great deal of personal courage. If you look at those pictures again, you'll see that some of his aides and his bodyguards are actually holding up, you know, what I think are like the um, the protective plates from a flak jacket. You know, they're, right. they're making a sort of primitive bulletproof shield around him because they're very aware that he could have been sniped at from there. And that took tremendous personal courage to stand out there. He didn't go on telly. He stood out in front of the crowd um, because he couldn't get on telly. You know, they, they did have control of the TV, even if I suggested they weren't making the best use of it. Um, but then there were sort of public instances, uh, you know, infamous ones like the stopover in the Republic of Ireland when he didn't get off the plane and it was said that, uh, you know, that the Irish Prime Minister rather embarrassedly waiting for him on the tarmac and it was said that he was terribly tired and jet-lagged. Um, but, you know, it was, it was pretty clear. But, you know, this was a time when there was an awful lot of heavy drinking in Russia anyway, and it's, uh, it's a culture that I think has changed. I mean, the last World Health Organization report a couple of years ago said that alcohol consumption had plummeted in Russia compared... Um, to the 1990s it was a massive social problem in the way Yeltsin as president sort of uh, epitomized that you know life expectancy for men in Russia at one point fell below 60 and a lot of that was to do with, with huge alcohol consumption 
Good Lord. Well, an, an amazing time. I mean, we can, we can do a whole other podcast on, on uh, several po- a series of podcasts on, on all the stuff that's, that's happened since then. Um, I've, on this podcast earlier, we were talking about optimism. What reasons have you got to be optimistic about where Russia is going at, at what is clearly a very dark time? I think the the short term political prognosis is pretty tough, to be honest with you. We're going to see parliamentary elections uh, next month, in fact. Uh, And we can just see that where, you know, opposition has been tolerated, albeit harassed, and, you know, really, really no longer is in Russia. Uh, It's a very difficult place to work in any kind of independent journalism. We've seen from the fate of Alexei Navalny that any attempt to formalise or organise political uh, dissent is very, very harshly treated in Russia now. So I think, um, but I think too, you'll, you'll be aware, Steve, that the, in the national vote uh, just 12 months or so ago, um, President Putin altered the constitution, which in theory gives him permission to stay mm. in power until 2036, by which time he'll be well into his 80s. So I think the short-term prognosis um, is not great in that sense. And certainly, sadly, for someone like me, who, who's so fascinated by the country, very little prospect, I think, of relations improving between Russia and the West in the foreseeable future. All that said, Russia is a land of immense talent. And I think um, once things begin to improve there, that talent can be harnessed and there's no reason why you know the country can't prosper and once again enjoy, hopefully, political freedoms without the chaos that accompanied it in, in the era we've been talking about. Well, you can read more about that in James's book. What's your book called, James? It's called Assignment Moscow, Reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. Available in all good bookshops uh, now, I, uh, I believe. Thank you so much for joining us. That's James Rogers. Uh, to enjoy more from James Rogers and to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. James Rogers there. And finally... It's the Hall of Shame, our home for bad politicians, Brexiteers, hoist by their own petard. Just things that annoy me, uh, generally. Um, Owen Patterson and Julian Knights are in the Hall of Shame. Cast your mind back to January when the Sun newspaper wrote, mobile phone operators will not bring back roaming charges for Brits travelling in Europe. And Brexiteer MPs like Owen Patterson and Julian Knight joined in the general scoffing. Uh, Owen Patterson said it showed the return of roaming charges was... Another scare story, Julian Knight said this proved it was another Ramona myth. Well, let's fast forward to this week. And The Sun wrote this. Vodafone will start charging customers £2 a day in roaming fees from the beginning of next year. It comes as EE and O2 have done the same. And what did Owen Patterson and Julian Knight say about that? Let, Let me check. Oh, it's nothing. They've said absolutely nothing about it. Alack, Igad, harumph, it's on Widdicombe Corner. The magical time in this podcast when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the ridiculous Daily Express. Here comes Anne. Jennifer Aniston says she has ditched friends who will not have the vaccine. In that case, her friendship was not worthy of the name. Following the 2016 referendum, some Remainers discarded long-standing friendships with Brexiteers. A whiff of the Inquisition hangs in the air. With the Inquisition, really? Surely you're allowed to be friends with who you like for whatever reasons you like. If you borrow 50 quid off me and you refuse to pay it back, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. If you slag me off behind my back, I'm not going to take you out for a pint. If you, you vote against 
all the evidence to make me poorer and reduce my opportunities, then I'm afraid you're going off my Christmas card list. So while a whiff of the Inquisition might be the name of Anne Widdicombe's favourite perfume, it's not really apt here, is it? But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Dan Wotton from GB News. Dan's Wotton has worked for The Sun, he's worked for The Mail, he now works for GB News. I think if I had to put all of that down on LinkedIn, I'd just delete it and write, I've spent the last few years in a maximum security prison. Apart from Nigel Farage, Dan's Fox News-inspired monologues are just about the only thing that GB News viewers wake up for. And this week he was talking about the band British Sea Power. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, they've removed the word British from their name, they're now called Sea Power. Uh, they said it's a protest about what they called isolationist antagonistic nationalism, which sounds intelligent. Dan Wharton called them lefty losers, which doesn't sound intelligent. And then Dan Wharton continued, this band are no Rolling Stones, Coldplay or Keen. That's a weird trilogy, isn't it? You might say this band are no Beatles, Rolling Stones or Pink Floyd or the band are no Beatles, Stones or Led Zeppelin. Instead, what Dan Wharton's done there is he, he said this by saying this band are no Rolling Stones, Coldplay or Keen, he's basically saying this football team are no Brazil 1970, Greece 2004, or indeed San Marino 2021. Keen, what a weird choice. Dan Wotton then added of British Sea Power, have you ever heard such ludicrous self-serving nonsense? To which my answer is yes, every night on the Dan Wotton Show, GB News, 9pm each weekday. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to you, Snowflakes, for listening. Thanks, too, to my excellent producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us, and I get a thrill out of them, too. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter, at New European. You can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.